gentlemen and welcome to i like to movie movie the podcast about movie movies my name is dan scully my name is garrett smith i hope you enjoyed that intro <laughs> i mean we might now just have a new intro like i might just <laughs> i might get rid of our theme song and that might become our theme song i mean if we're gonna record it and put it down like as a permanent track i would certainly like to do it a little better and like actually warm up my singing voice because i've just been screaming all day yeah, so, yeah. This is not not that I'm a good singer to begin with, but you know, I'm yeah. operating at a deficit. Well, yeah, and you're uh, apparently living Jason Manzukis's life of just constantly screaming at the top of your lungs, no matter where oh, yeah. where you are, no matter what you're I doing. I can't make heads or tails of it. Yeah. Actually, that's that's the one thing that I bond with Manzukis and Seth Rogen. Seth Rogen is that we all have grumble voice. It's yeah, just yeah. Part of who I am. And you know, that so. was, for some reason, that was what it made me think of when you uh, <laughs> said you've been screaming all day. I was like, yeah. <laughs> That's just how, uh, what's the, uh, Bill Burr had a joke on one of his really old albums. He was like, I can't tell you how many times a day people always ask me, why are you yelling? This <laughs> isn't yelling. <laughs> I like, yeah. Dude, I hear you. Cause I'm always yelling and I don't really ever know. <laughs> I definitely have spent most of my life. Like usually if a conversation goes on long enough, at some point, someone will have to be like, Hey, just like take the volume down a little bit. Yep. Yep. Yeah, very good that we've decided to have a podcast together. I know. Because I'm sure there's plenty of screaming to happen. Yeah, I'm sure uh, my partner loves being in a different room of the house while I'm podcasting. I'm probably just screaming from this room. <laughs> that's all right. She can calm you down on your podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> pump the brakes for it. Yeah. Well, this is I Like to Movie Movie. You can find us everywhere at I Like to Movie. It occurred to me that our Instagram that we haven't put anything on is actually IL to Movie. I don't know when that happened. I forget. I forgot that that we didn't actually get it because someone else has I Like 2 movie. Yeah. So we're at I Like 2 movie on everywhere else. Yeah. But definitely like, subscribe, leave a comment. All of that helps. We do have a Patreon eventually coming. Yeah. But, um, uh, you know. We're on, and we're now on MovieJohn.com. MovieJohn.com is part of the yeah. MovieJohn podcast network. So proud to be part of that. And looking forward to whatever that brings us, and more importantly, whatever we bring to them. Um, <laughs> no, that's uh, they'll bring us much more than we'll ever bring them. Um, so yes, welcome to the show, everybody. Uh, today we are completing our series on The Omen. Um, yeah. Much like we did with the Psycho series, we have done every uh, entry in The Omen franchise up to and including today's entry, the 2006 remake. Directed oh. by John Moore. Ah, you the guy, guy who did, uh, what's it, Max Payne. Correct. And, and be, um, Behind Enemy Lines. Oh, Behind Enemy Lines. I remember enjoying that well enough. Flight of the Phoenix. Also one? a remake of a classic movie. Yep, yep. Um, yeah, he's got nine directing credits. 
Oh, right uh, on. This being one of them. Um, oh, guess what one of his other directing credits is? I think we've done this movie on the show. A Good Day to Die Hard. Yeah, I didn't want to say its name out loud. <laughs> but, um, you know. <laughs> so good old Johnny Moore. Yeah. Uh, well, and, and in honor of this horror film uh, being a remake of a classic uh, for our list, a little bit later on, we're going to be proposing some remakes yes. and attaching them to directors of choice. Yes. So stick around for that. And I Very think exciting. that's actually the angle that I want to take diving into this, is yeah. this movie is directed in the most fascinating way. Because, like, uh, like shot by shot, yeah, there's some shots in here that are really tremendously well done. Totally agree. Moment by moment, it's one of the worst directed movies I have ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> also, fully agree. <laughs> I couldn't. There were so many things where I was like, "These are some absolutely baffling structural choices." Yes. On like a macro level, and I mean macro, like scene by scene, but like yeah. moment, like shot to shot, there was a couple things where I went, "That was kind of masterful." Yep. I think it was an accident. The, I mean, there are, I think, many shots in this movie that are really, really nice to look at. Uh, mm -hmm. In particular, and this will make sense to you immediately, you probably thought of it when it happened, I think David Thewlis's dark room is incredible looking. Oh, that's yeah. A, that's a wonderful piece of, like, set and production design. But I have to add, it's one that would not at all function because right. his dark room yes. has plate glass windows leading into his normally lit office, yes. which would destroy any and all photos, yep. no matter how much red light you, you fill that yep. room with, those totally. windows would ruin it. So this, that made me laugh. But this movie visually, you want that because the red looks so great for your shot. It, it does. And, and visually, in general, there's like great production and set design that rarely actually makes any sense with the story, but looks awesome. Like that fucking bathroom she's in at one point. Do you know what I'm talking about? Like just oh, all yeah. of a sudden she's in this like really weird fucking bathroom that like I guess is in that house that they bought. But like that bathroom's not in that house that they bought. Oh, no. Like, you know, <laughs> like it was weird, though, because like there's so many choices in this movie. Because like, where's my notes? I actually wrote this down as a way I wanted to say it. Yeah. This is one of those movies where like the original, the material the the directing matches the material in yeah. that it has that classic kind of old timey look to it. Yeah. It has sort of a like biblical tone and everything. Yeah. This movie takes a similar script with similar source material, which we had some theories about the script to this in previous episodes that we can actually talk into some yes. real answers. But you know, like the material this is based on is obviously some very good material. And it, you have to work hard to fuck it up. Yeah. The problem is the tone that they're trying to match to this material, one that would also suit a more biblical classical direction, is wearing the windbreaker of a 2006 <laughs> sleek, you know, like post-Goyer thriller. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a strange look, and it's one yes. of those things that the look might work for a different set of material. Yes. And the material, I don't think the script is necessarily awful. Right. But I think that if it was directed right, it would be a lot better. Yes. Um, I, it, I it's a very weird mismatch. I, I agree with you. Because, like, the whole time I kept being like, I really kind of love the way this movie looks. Mm -hmm. But I never once liked the movie I was watching. Like, the whole time <laughs> yeah. I was like, I, I don't like this. This is, like, a really dumb... And, you know, like, a lot of it... And I... I man, I... 
this is going to sound way meaner than it should. I genuinely really like both Julia Stiles and um, Lee F. Schreiber. I think they're both Who, great. I got to add, Lee F. Schreiber in this movie, he's a fucking smoke show. That, oh, yeah. That's a handsome man. And yes. he looks great in this movie. Yes. They're both good actors that I have liked like a lot in other movies. And they are so fucking boring to spend this movie with. There I is... feel like they're not being directed. I think yeah. that's really what's happening. And I, I hate to put it all on this poor director. Yeah, yeah. Because it's not incompetent. It's just poor choices. But yeah, it it had that vibe of a director just saying, like, you're a pro, you know what to do, which sometimes works. Yeah. But, like, I would imagine that there was a point where at least one of them was like, how do you want me to play this? And he was just like, eh. <laughs> like, yeah. It just has that kind of vibe. I mean, it really, I couldn't believe it. Like, like there is no scene in this movie where either of them feels like they're even like awake. And, yeah, and again, it's very this, sleepy. This sounds like very insulting to them, but I don't even mean it to be necessarily because they're not particularly bad in it. There's just like no life to any of their scenes. And I think it, it hurts because like I, you had said that in our group text before yeah. I watched it last night. Yeah, yeah. And so I was like, oh, interesting. Because I, I saw this before I saw any other Omen movie in the theater. And I remember being uh-huh. like, okay, that's fine. Yeah. But I was also, you know, 21, 22 at the time. Yeah. Um, and, uh, but you pointed that out. And I was like, all right, well, you know, with that in mind, maybe I'll be a little bit more forgiving towards their performances. But no, I felt the same way. But yeah. it wasn't enough to take me out of it oh. until Pete Postlethwaite showed up <laughs> and cranked everything up to 300 million and just <laughs> blew everyone out of the water. Yeah. And I was like, if everyone in the movie, including the director, went for the tone that Postlethwaite's going for, I think we'd get across the finish line a little better and a little cleaner. Um, It's not necessarily that he's matching the tone of the original Omen, but it it just felt so lively in just a lake with no ripples. You know, it it was very plain up until he showed up and tore it up. I agree with you, and I, I, I actually like. Let's uh, put a put an earmark on that really quick because I want to yeah. talk about him more. But just as long as we're kind of talking the overall performances, the other one I want to bring up is um, David Thewlis. I think is great in this movie. David Thewlis is the modern analog of David Warner. Right. Yeah. So it actually worked. Like that was a very very good piece of casting. Yes. If we were to remake Ninja Turtles two and yes. we needed a new Bobo Baxter Stockman, it yes. would be Thewlis. That's. Yes. That's the universal correct choice. And yeah, you know, I, I agree. He was a great casting choice. And honestly, I thought he his character was one that could stand to have been really interesting. It just didn't quite play. I, I agree. I honestly, he should have been in more of the movie because he's one of the only performances in the movie that I think kind of works. And it, uh, honestly, part of it was just I don't know if this will track for you, but like him as like a posh photographer made makes no sense to me. That still doesn't make any sense to me. That shouldn't work at all, and it works totally and completely. Like, he's great at it. I don't know if I read him as posh, because yeah. to me, he he sort of had that uh, he sort of had that Michael Lerner P.I. vibe, where sure, it was yes. like this guy is uh, like, this guy is a dyed-in-the-wool, like, put a press card in my hat photojournalist. Like, that's what he thinks he is. I think you're right. I got that read on the character. There was something about his... That said, he's a little less... The David Warner's take on this character yeah. is it Keith Jennings or something like that? I can't remember. I don't so, know. I don't uh, know. His take on the character does have a more posh and classy vibe. Yeah. Whereas this guy has more of a Freddie Lyons vibe. 
Yeah, okay, I could buy that a Freddie Lowndes vibe. Yeah, I, can, I, can you tell I watched the premiere episode of Clarice about an hour ago? <laughs> well, but I think uh, Keith Jennings, you're correct. That is okay. the, the character. I, I wasn't sure if I was confusing him with Ken Jennings, right? Who is currently uh guest hosting Jeopardy and who's like a little bit of a hero of mine. Yeah, uh, I like uh, him a lot, he's very funny. Um, but I, I do. There's something about the denim jacket that he's wearing and like yeah. the way his hair is styled. And like, there's just something where I was like, this shouldn't like Thulis doesn't make sense as this to me at all. And everything about it works. Like, I, I just like couldn't figure it out. It feels to me, I don't know anything about this director, but this movie had very, very serious. I don't speak English vibes, but I've made all the decisions. Uh-huh. And so that feels like a decision made in like, what do Americans like? What is good? Uh, how about the, they like denim? They like denim jacket? Put him in denim jacket. He's a very cool dude. Very cool. I don't know uh, why I'm turning him into a Paul Verhoeven well, character. Looks like he was born in uh, Dundalk, Ireland in 1970. Okay. So he's like, hi, we put him into, into a, blue, uh, a blue denim jacket. And it's, it's, it's to make him real cool like in America. And we're like, uh, uh, we actually don't love denim. <laughs> in the, no, it just, it, I don't know if that's what is happening in that decision. But it definitely felt like someone who isn't cool making a choice to make him look cool and accidentally stumbling into that weird area where uncool is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I, yes, I, he, he really works in this movie. He's like one of the only things that works. Like the other thing, uh, casting wise that I wanted to talk about is one that I don't think works really at all and on paper should is Mia Farrow as the, uh, uh, what is she? Oh, She's uh, like the... Miss Bay Baylock. Baylock, yes, that's the character's name. Well, that's obviously a novelty pool because of yes. Rosemary's Baby. Yes, and um, yeah, I think she goes a little too big with it. I would agree. Well, I just like it's not. Again, it's not even like a bad performance from her or anything. But no, she's doing what she does. Typically. Yeah, there's something about it that just doesn't work. This movie is like not pulling any of the tonal stuff that this script requires together you know what i mean like it i made a note and i think this is actually a result of this problem is this a good remake i feel like either serves the original very well or caters to a completely new audience and doesn't worry about honoring the original right this one i think simultaneously is looking for an audience that is very reverent towards the original and is also writing to an audience that has never seen it before right and so there's all of these like there's all of these things that in the original movie feel lived in yeah that don't feel lived in here and she's one of them it feels like there's like a lot of things that feel like exposition in this movie yeah. that just feel like they are, you know, part of the circumstance of the original movie, if that makes sense. You know, yeah. like the, the original movie, it feels like you're saying uh, lived in. And I like that because it, it feels natural to the movie that we're watching this guy that is like the ambassador to Britain and his son, you know, like something about it just kind of makes sense in that movie. And it, it all yeah. kind of feels of a piece. And like here, it never doesn't feel like, I've got to get some of these facts across to you because you at home need to understand them. You know, like, there's a there's a moment where they dig up the jackal mom. Yeah. In and in the I believe, if I remember correctly, in our episode on the omen. Yeah. We both asked the question of does that mean that his baby was perhaps killed by this cult? Right. And the movie never explicitly says 
it just leaves that ambiguity there. So we go, well, it could have died naturally, which sucks, or it could have been a conspiracy, which also sucks. Right. In this movie, Liev Schreiber is standing over the corpse of the <laughs> jackal, literally yelling to the crowd, that means they killed my boy! And yeah. I was like, there's the problem with this movie. And that's when I made the note where I was like, this movie wants to make sure that people who didn't see the original get what's going on. Right. This movie also doesn't seem to get why the original works. Yeah. You know, and at the same time is trying to have this jackal scene, which honestly, I don't even know is really that needed if you're going to explain it. <laughs> right. It was, it was very, and so yeah, this was very much a movie that was like motoring through, exp even like their road trip to find yeah. the knives of Megiddo or whatever. Yes. That felt Dude, like an adventure in the first movie. Yeah, this felt like a checklist, and and, and it was oh, it was just. And they yeah. go to the uh, the roadside pizza uh, RV. You know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, are they trying to convince me that in Italy, if you're just traveling around the Italian countryside, every few miles or so, there's just like. An Italian mommy and daddy that are making a pizza to pie out of the back of the trailer there where they're living. I mean, I've never been to Italy, so I can't speak to whether it's accurate or not, but yeah. it doesn't feel right. No. Um, in Los Angeles, there's taco stands like that, I mean, but uh, that's the population. It straight up looks like an American cafe as like an RV that they're trying to convince me is like a mom and pop like installation just on the side of the road in the Italian countryside. It's so funny. I suspect that that was a result of the fact that Italy in this movie, actually a lot of this movie was very painfully blue screen. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like the, when they were uh, sitting at like an outdoor table, it was yes. the most, uh, and it's funny too, because I got this Blu-ray from a stack of free Blu-rays that someone in my uh -huh. neighborhood would just like porched. And they were like, yeah. you know, come grab them at, out of our buy nothing group. Yeah. And it's like an older Blu-ray, but it has like, higher than high definition <laughs> 1080p listed on it because like it's pre 4k and all that yeah yeah and i was watching i'm going i think this movie might have benefited from a lower uh you know lower definition yeah. presentation because even the most simple indoor scene i could see the border on them that that you know yep. is apparent when people are being green screen it was very weird it just and it was one of those things that had I not, this is going to sound dumb, but I think you know what I mean. Had I not noticed it, I wouldn't have noticed. But right. once I noticed it once, it was it was unshakable. Yeah. It well, was it, very weird. It was the thing that was weird about that to me. And it's actually, it's particularly noticeable in the scene I'm talking about uh, mm. where they're like definitely not actually at like, <laughs> you know, an outdoor location in Italy. That's like part of why it all stands out. But um it reminds me of like how a lot of the Marvel movies look. Cause they're, you know, this is how big movies are made now. Just generally, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, Lucas kind of does this with the, uh, the star Wars prequels and, you know, 25 years later. And that's like, uh, you know, most big movie studios are sort of like built on that concept that you can kind of like have these big green screen backgrounds and be anywhere. You know, you can have a big global globe trotting movie and never leave Atlanta. Yeah, And it's weird to me watching a movie from 2006 where it's like somebody was already doing that. You know what I mean? Like yeah. somebody somewhere in Hollywood was already trying to adopt this idea, uh, you know, right on the heels of that Star Wars prequel trilogy uh, to like make kind of expensive looking movies for, for cheaper, you know? Yeah. I mean, it's a smart move if you yeah. do it right. It's just like, I mean, in the prequels, it was one of those things where since it was such an early thing, um, 
actors didn't quite know how to act yeah. like that yet. Right. And so I think like over time, as that's gotten more common, you know, they've become, you know, more, it's like, you know, the introduction of a camera changed stage acting and film acting into two different things. And so I think that having a blue screen probably has another branch of, of that yep. skill set that, that comes off of it. And this is still on the early end of things. And it shows both in the tech and in the performances because now like, yeah, you can sometimes tell, but a lot of times I'm shocked to find something was green screened. Yeah. You know, like I I was watching some like behind the scenes footage of the Wolf of wall street. Yeah. So much of that movie is on a green screen when you never would have expected it. And it looks great. Granted. I imagine that Scorsese is working with a much cleaner bill than uh you know someone who's remaking the omen (laughs) but um you know but still it was just kind of it's fascinating to see so i'm not anti the technology yeah but it's one of those things that as soon as you notice it it sinks the film yeah yeah um and i guess i mean one i don't know why i wanted to talk about all the cast but for some reason that was important to me on this one uh the kid is um good i think he kind of creeped me out a little extra because he looks a lot like uh, like a nephew of mine. Um, uh, so it was like a little extra freaky because I was like, oh, I, I know a kid that looks, you know, just like this. Um, but uh, I don't know. I feel like the actual it's um, Seamus Davey Fitzpatrick is the uh, the young actor that played Damien in this. Um, but I I don't know. And it, this is not meant to be. I mean, the, the kid's a good kid actor, I think, and, and works for this role. But their use of Damien, I thought was weird in this movie, actually. Like, he's kind of like not in the movie that much. Well, here's the thing. This is and I have another I, I, yeah. I took so many notes. I have another thing about this. I have a theory about that because I agree. Yeah. It occurs to me that the first two movies actually don't really feature much Damien. Right. This doesn't feature any more or less than the original. I, right. I don't think you're probably right. The problem is, in the original, they don't focus on him at all. Right. It's about Gregory Peck. It's right, about, right. you know, like, they don't focus on him. There's not really any outlet for the little kid to do any, like, I'm being creepy moments. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this, the in the remake, it's only focusing on this kid's creepiness. Yeah, yeah. And, like, and it, and it, it took me out of it because, one, you could never feasibly believe that Julia Stiles would not know that that kid who looks absolutely nothing like either of his parents wasn't, you know, an an adoptee. Um, He looks like Gregory Peck in the original. Yeah. Well, now, you know, I get it. He's supposed to have big blue eyes and, and, uh, you know, a mop of of black uh, foreboding hair. Yeah. But like, he just did not look like them at all. In fact, the whole time I was watching Julia Stiles, I was taken aback by how her and Jesse Plemons could be brother and sister. I, I actually had the same thought for yeah. some reason. I was I like, had a similar one with um, yeah. Liev Schreiber and Rebecca Ferguson could be oh, yeah. brother and sister in a movie. They, yeah, yeah. I just was seeing a lot of that there. But like this kid, like in the Omen, we were left in the dark as to the extent of his abilities, yeah. as to how connected he felt to these abilities, how right. much he knew of him being protected and all that, yeah. and whether or not his abilities were indeed magical or just uh, uh, circumstance-based. And in this remake, they're expressly magical. He knows how creepy he's being. He has contempt for the mother immediately. (laughs) And, and like, it's just, it's one of those weird things by robbing it of all the ambiguities. Suddenly the focal point is on the kid rather than the kid occupying the children should be seen, not heard role that a child would have occupied in the political scene of the 70s. You know, it's just interesting. 
by being so expressly magical and so expressly this kid is demon child yeah it, it it changes the focus in a way that i couldn't help but notice I couldn't help but notice the performance notes that this kid, who I agree, did a wonderful job. I yeah. couldn't help but notice his performance, and I think that functionally he should not have been noticeable. Yeah, I actually I think this makes sense. Like the, the this is why it seemed so strange to me, and I just like couldn't. Uh, you, you put words to my thoughts very well there. I think. Um, Thank you. Yeah, there like there's something so like okay, so the the scene where the you know the initial sort of. Um, I keep wanting to call them handmaidens, and that is definitely not what they are. They're yeah. minions. Yeah, yeah, right. Let's That's... reclaim. Let's reclaim that phrase, minions. Yeah. From those interminable fucking little yellow butt plugs that beep at each other or whatever they yeah. do. But the uh, you know the, the the first woman that hangs herself at the party. Yeah. Um. She they in this movie, and I don't remember this being the case in the original one. Maybe I'm wrong, but they are very expressly clear that the dog communicates to the woman like you need to go do this like the dog kind of possesses the that the dog yeah. is like specifically the meaning of satan and the dog is then possessing other people to like do things you know what i mean yeah and i don't remember the original movie being that clear the original movie was i feel like a lot more wishy-washy on like exactly who was being possessed and when and by whom and how you know i think in the original we're left with the question of was she possessed by, and right. we have to ask this after the credits roll. Yeah. Was she possessed in the moment? Was right. she one of these people that was inserted to help? And I don't think there's enough information to determine it. Agreed. Um, I do think she does have a moment where she like kind of loses herself in a thing. Yeah. And it might be triggered when the dog shows up. Sure. But it's not express that the dog is willing her to do it as it is in the remake. Yeah. And I'd also like to point out that uh, the dog that wills her to do this in the remake is a completely different dog. <laughs> it's like it's like a, a like a dark black husky. Yeah. And in the Omen, it was always always a Cujo dog. Or was yeah. that a Cujo? Or no? What are I they called? Know. I know it's a man's best friend dog. Whatever kind that is. You ever seen <laughs> that movie Lance Hendrickson versus Robot Dog? No. Oh, man's best that friend. That sounds great. One of those mid '90s PG-13 classics that just like you that know that I loved great. as a kid. I don't know if it's good, but like yeah. when I was like nine and caught it yeah. on TNT, I was like, this shit is fucking metal. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's like a weird, like black husky dog. And yes. so in my head, I had like pet cemetery thoughts where I went, oh, like they updated church to a yeah. new cat. I was like, okay, they updated the Rottweiler. That's what it was. They yeah, updated right. the yes. Rottweiler to, um, you know, a different type of dog. Yeah. But then it's just, then, then a Rottweiler makes its way into the movie and it's yes. Rottweilers again. And I was like, I don't, it was a weird choice. Now, granted, I'm looking at it with the eyes of how is this movie updating? And so yeah. I figured like, oh, they're updating the original by changing the dog. Yeah. You know, yeah. like yeah. Uh, Church and Pet Cemetery, the remake, is like a Maine Coon kind of cat. Right. Whereas in the original, it looks exactly like my cat, Doris, the, yes. the Russian blue. Yeah. And uh, the uh, yeah, and so it was just weird that they did that switch. And that's when it occurred to me. I was like, I don't think there's more than in the moment thought being put into any of this. It's weird, like, and I, but that's it, how you get results of we don't know what that lady's motivation is. Yeah, but and then in this movie, it's like it's so express, like it feels yeah. very express that the dog is like willing her to do this like weird act or whatever, you know. And and I don't know that that doesn't do much for me. I don't know why. I don't know why that's so different, but it's different enough that I'm like, I don't like that. Like that doesn't work for me. I came out of the original going, I wonder what the rules of this are, right. and then ultimately landing on 
oh no, the rules are actually not really an issue. Right. Um, it, it's like watching it follows where you go, I'm only entitled to a certain amount, the amount that our surrogate is entitled to, and that's it. Yeah. And from there you can build the mythology. And so I can't, and I came out of the Omen thinking that the Omen remake had a very distinct feeling of the lore of this doesn't make sense. It doesn't add up. Yeah. Like it, it didn't do the work to purchase my ability to purchase the ambiguity and instead just felt sloppy and cryptic. Yeah. Like, um, uh, I was thinking about the knives too. Cause I say sloppy and cryptic. And insanely specific and expository at the same yes. time. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I agree with you. Like the knives were a thing that we've talked about a bunch where we were yes. like, I'm well, confused. Is it one? Yeah, like I'm confused on the rules. I thought you had to stab them with all seven, but they only ever seem to need to do it with one. And then in this, they get very express about like, you need all, like Michael Gambone has this like crazy rambling speech about like, you, you need all seven, but only the first one kills the body. The other six kill the spirit. Yes, so that they yeah. can explain that, like, only one of them is actually needed for the finale of this movie to take place. You know, it's like, yeah. It, it, and I agree that ultimately it's like, that is way less interesting than it's way the less... wishy-washy, like, what's going on rules. In the original, they do say that they have to put it into the point of a pentagram. Right, right. Okay, yeah. But that's kind of it. Like, it's yeah. left as that. It's There isn't the explanation of, like, you see, this one stops the heart. Yeah, and then after the heart, this one stops this aspect. Yeah. Like it's a horcrux. Yeah. You know, it's it's very yeah. It it was a and, and it was all thing where it's like okay, if I want to have a crazy drunken priest to throw some exposition at me, look no further than Michael Gambon. You know he's yeah. going to crush it. Yeah, and it just felt silly yeah, the way it was handled. And I don't know where that dis- I, I have to blame the direction again. I there's a disconnect there that shouldn't exist. Yeah, I. I... And, like, then there's things like, okay, so I wanted to get back to Pete Postlethwaite because I think this fits in a little bit to what we're saying, where one of the weirder choices that, so with the rest of the movie being so much more specific Mm -hmm. and without even changing that much, right? Like, we'll get into it, but, like, this script is very similar to the original movie, and yet it's very specific about certain things that make all of it, like, kind of less interesting or at least make less sense in some weird way especially as like a 2006 movie, you know, like, so the weirdest part though, is then the Pete Postlethwaite thing, they don't change. And that's one of the weirdest things in the original movie anyway, is that this priest keeps showing up and rambling insanely at the father character at, at Mr. Thorne, like saying crazy shit that no, even, even a person that was willing to listen to, Actually, your son, your son is the son of the devil and you need to murder him. Even if for some reason you were talking to a person that was maybe willing to hear that, presenting it in the way that that character does, uh, you're never going to get anybody. screaming, his mother is a jackal, he's not right. human. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's like, you're never going to get anybody. And to me, it was crazy that that was one of the choices they didn't change. Yeah. Like, how does that get maintained of all of these things? You know what I mean? That like, Yeah, they could have had somebody, like, who doesn't feel like an old-timey priest. In the original Omen, I think its age works for it because right. we view it as another time. And so yes. con- a contem- that that priest doesn't exist in a contemporary sense. Yeah, right, right. Like that type of priest. Yeah. I love when he meets him under the bridge. Yes. Um, a great-looking uh, like scene. Another great-looking great scene. And he shows up and he's like, all right, you got five minutes. What do you got for me, old man? Yeah. And then he just launches into a slow, labored recitation of a nonsense poem. Yes. That Liev Schreiber's character keeps going, 
can you get to the point? Get to the... I'm leaving. I'm leaving. And he's just like, and on the comet's return of the... Like, yeah. What is happening? Yes. Like, what is this? And, and, and to find out that his character's doing this because he's, he's terminally ill right, makes right. me just wonder why he wouldn't get to the fucking point even quicker then. <laughs> I, and then that's the other thing, right? You're like, you're like, you don't even need this character to do this in this movie. Like, you're updating this so you don't need him to be this, like, really weird, wild stereotype. You can, you can do everything that this character needs to do without him seeming so crazy you know yeah but but then because they decide to do that anyway they still feel like they need to be the modern movie that's explaining everything so they do later go like he's hopped up on morphine <laughs> you know, yeah, like, they give yeah. you this like they give you this crazy explanation for like why he's so nuts and it's like why are we doing any of this <laughs> like what is the point of this infinitely more compelling would yeah. be to write that character as a priest who's just like you have to listen I yeah. know that what I'm doing is not popular anymore. Yeah, I yeah. know that these forces are considered a story from an olden time, but I am telling you that they are yeah. real. Yeah. I know how crazy I sound, but I have, <laughs> but I have the documents, mm -hmm. uh, but I, I have, I have the ability. Like that would be so much scarier because to me, if I was uh, thorn in the remake, yeah. I would be like, I'm just going to walk away and then never think about this dude ever again yes. at all. And I'm yes. not going to feel, even if people start, bodies start piling up, I'm still not going to believe this guy. Uh -huh. um, but if he's a guy who like came at me straight and was like, listen, you know, faith is passe, but you need to listen. That's, yes. that's scarier. And yeah. that would be the kind of thing that even if I was a very important politician, I'd, I'd, it would stick in my craw in a way that, that would leave me feeling that fear. I, it's, oh, there's so... I think The Omen is a movie that can be remade. Yeah. And I just don't think that this was the way to do it at all. Well, so one of the things that was interesting to me was the opening scene is the Vatican's observatory seeing the comet, right? Ah, uh, yes. Starring the uh, guy from Blood from Stone as the, uh, yeah, yeah. As the guy ready that I immediately thought of him. It, do I remember correctly that that is not introduced until either the second or third movie? The idea of all the, like the astrology coming into the Christian mythology. It tracks with the second movie for me because I right. know that that was the you know the the ninja priests were yeah. connected to that right. Um, whereas the f I don't remember like it could have been a scene right at the beginning of the Omen, and I yeah. can kind of picture that, but I I don't remember at all. I kind of feel like that's an idea from one of the sequels. Yeah. And so I, when it started, I was like, I was like, Oh, okay. I like this. We're going to make an Omen remake where we consider the whole trilogy as yes. like the text. You I know? had the same thought. Yes. I was like, cool. I like that. That's actually a good idea. But then that's the only time they do that. The rest of the movie is almost a straight remake of the original movie. There's like, that astrology stuff really does not actually matter that much outside of the fact that eventually they reference that it's January 6th, 2006. And you realize like, Oh, the impetus for this entire movie is that the actual date 666 was approaching. Oh, yeah. And so they were like, we got to get an omen movie together so that we can release it on 666 because then the one thing we can add to the original omen script is and he was born on june 6th of 2006 yeah you know like we can add Which the, crazy the to think that's layer. the day i saw it yeah that's yep. crazy uh, i'm looking at the wikipedia plot description of the original yep. omen and it makes no mention of that so i think yeah. we are correct in that it brought the space 
Space Devil. Yeah, right. <laughs> space, yes. space Devil uh, concept from the sequel into and, the beginning. And then, as you said, did absolutely fuck nothing. all with it. Nothing. Nothing with it. So annoying. Because I thought I was excited about that when the movie started. I was like, oh, cool. I like the idea of doing this movie again, but in full view of the trilogy, thinking like we're going to plant all the seeds. I was like, who knows? Maybe I didn't know this. And this movie is going to fucking like speed through this kid's childhood into his adulthood. You know oh, what I yeah. mean? Like, I don't know. I could I'm... live with an Omen remake that, you know, does like an intermission time jump into yeah. adult Damien. Yeah. Because like the first two movies, you can really run back to back plot wise totally. and turn it into a, a cohesive thing. Uh, yeah, I think that's totally and, and honestly that would clean up the incomplete feelings of uh the final conflict yeah. as well to to do it that way. But yeah, it's yeah, for it to do that and then go to not a shot for shot remake, but a beat for beat remake is like really weird and a and a turgid one at that. I it, found the pace of this just to be so rough. Agreed. Did you I watched the quote unquote uncut version of the movie, which is like an hour and fifty minutes long. Does that feel like what you watched? Mine was about an hour 50. I don't know what probably, the So probably the same. Was, we probably, probably watched the same cut then. And I felt like, I mean, this is one of those movies where it's like, that's just because that was the cut I could get my hands on. Yeah. I And I don't know, but I hope to God the theatrical cut is 90 minutes because you definitely could have lost 20 minutes out of what oh, I Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, just shave a little bit of exposition off of each scene and yeah. you could lose 20 minutes right there. Yeah. Um, also, I want to ask if you did you notice the puppets during the scene where the nanny hangs herself? Puppets. Oh, yes. Yes. That was the that was the moment where I realized I was going to start blaming everything on the director. Yeah, because uh, what I'm talking about to, to the listeners here is when the nanny hangs herself at the birthday party. Yeah. This is a pretty big birthday party. You know, yeah. it's a diplomat's child's birthday party. So there's a carousel and there's clowns and there's this and there's a puppet show. And so when she gets on the roof and yells, Damien, look, Damien, look, it does like that real quick, just rapid fire of different heads and faces at the party reacting and looking in the direction of where she's standing. Included in that is two puppets that are performing the puppet show that both give a look towards her, which is crazy because they don't actually see and the puppeteer (laughs) would not actually have seen and it is a completely now i don't want to pick apart a fantasy movie for a fantastical element but like you got to maintain your reality <laughs> and that is an utterly baffling choice yep that announces that this is pretend and <laughs> and like it's the kind of thing that yeah it's stupid but like it's such a small thing it's half a second and it's the kind of thing that like robbed the rest of the movie of any amount of terror it could possibly have had for me yeah i'm being petty but whatever i i mean i i will i i there is no argument against what you're saying i like it is an insane choice so much so that i also noted it but i think because the movie was so like already just like i i was like not into it pretty much from the jump it just made me laugh, and I, yeah. I just was, I, I kind of just let it. I don't know. It is an annoying, weird choice, but it just kind of made me laugh that it was a choice that they that they decided to make. Well, I'll put it this way: it was like bittersweet because when it happened, I laughed, and I simultaneously knew that the bad news was this was not going to be a good movie. Yeah. But the good news was I can just kind of sit back and relax yeah. because there's not anything here that I necessarily need to engage with, and so it. It hurt the movie because I knew it wasn't going to be good, but it helps the movie because I knew it wasn't going to be good. I could just chill and have a good time. Yeah. 
Well, yeah, and so it was kind of nice. I do think uh, that like reminded me that there are a couple of other choices that I, I think are actually kind of along the lines of that choice, but maybe a little more extreme that I was like kind of baffled by. One of them being Damien in the white wooden mask in that one nightmare. Do you know what oh, I'm talking yeah, about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they tried uh, to weasel a couple of jump scares into that. Yeah, the, basically there's like an there there are a few nightmare sequences that all have kind of cult imagery in them and that's it. They're just it happens like twice in the movie. I think both Mrs. and Mr. Thorne have a nightmares yeah. at different points and they each have kind of cult imagery. One of them is like Damien in a mask, one of them's like somebody in like one of those, you know, uh uh, uh bull skull things, yeah. you know. Um, and it just is like vaguely generalized cult imagery, but it like, there's no cult in the movie. There's no, you know what I mean? It's like that. Yeah. That's not, there's nothing comes of that. That doesn't mean anything. It just, we see these nightmares, they happen and that is it. They happen. You know, it's, it's, it strange. feels like like the script, the shooting script was probably like insert here. Devil shit. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like there's, there's no like creative choice to it. It's just like a uh, red cloak, uh, yeah. animal skull. And um, a pale, bald guy who does this. Yeah, yeah. And, like, it was, yeah, it was very, yeah, what a strange thing. So, it do, the only thing that it did that I liked, and we could, I'm curious if you noticed this as well, and it was, like, one of the choices I did like in this movie, and it really just made me wish the movie was better, is the use of the color red anytime someone was about to die. Yeah. Um, the movie has a very blue-green color palette, like, kind of generally. Yeah. Uh, and there are distinct uses of like a very like deep eye popping red that basically increase anytime someone is about to die. If a character is going to die, you just start seeing red in the frame around yeah. them. And then as they move through the scene, there's more and more red. You just notice more and more things in the background that are red. I loved this idea. I hate that the movie is so bad that it's just, kind of, you know, it's like a good idea in a useless movie, you know? Yeah. Like, you could have um, used that red almost to subconsciously build dread in the viewer. Yeah. But it, for me, like it, it was never used in a way that like it, it made me build dread. Right. It was used in such a way that it was later on in the movie when uh, Pete Postlethwaite's about to die and just someone yeah. walks by in the background with a red cloak on where I was yes. like, oh, that's kind of a thing they're doing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's very apparent. Neat. Yeah. And like, yeah. And so, but it, like, it's one of those things that like you, I noticed, but it didn't have any sort of experiential effect on me as a viewer I hear except you. that i just noticed it yes and yeah. it seems so weird like i don't know what that missing little zhuzh is to to make that connection but it just wasn't here yeah it's like the I, basis like you don't hear it until it's gone yeah i'm totally with you i uh because i liked i really did like the kind of visual language of the movie and I even liked this idea of the Reds kind of coming in and kind of cueing me into like who was going to die and when, especially because the movie does have a plot element of like the photographer sees these weird things that like show him who's going to die. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's already like a mechanic of the plot. So like I kind of liked it, but it just like it, the movie itself. You're right. Like it, none of these things actually enhance the experience of the movie. And so then it's like they don't matter. Like they're, you know, they're, they're choices that I sort of if you strip them of context, I like them. But once you put the context of this movie on them, they don't work. You yeah, know? it doesn't really give them context because they just feel like checking off the omen yeah. list. Yeah, there, there's a shot that made me laugh out loud, and it's when uh, uh, Jennings is yeah. 
you know, first developing pictures and stuff. And there's this one shot where he, he's got a picture of, of uh, Father Postlethwaite, uh, Pad- Padre Postlethwaite on the wall. <laughs> and he's got a magnifying glass just on Postlethwaite's face. Yeah. And so there's no information. There's no things stabbing him or anything like that within that magnifying glass. It just makes his dumb face bigger. Uh-huh. And they treat this as it's shot as a as a eureka moment, uh-huh. even to the point where it pans around to Thewlis looking at this magnifying glass and then having like a you motherfucker moment. <laughs> but it's never apparent what he sees. Right. It just seems to be that the director was like, the magnifying glass is about the same size as his head. Yeah. We'll frame it up like that. It lines up perfect, right? amazing how these happy accidents happen and it's like <laughs> i don't know what information jennings is getting out of this photo yeah all we're getting is this highly stylized conceptually sound shot that has no meaning yes and i feel like that keeps happening and but when when it like it has like a big like music hit when it shows what he's looking at through the magnifying glass is just possible its face like eh. yeah <laughs> it's like okay you know what it kind of reminds whose corpse was put on the front page of the newspaper. Might, that was might crazy to me. That was that crazy was to me. Yes. I was like, what world is this? Yeah. This gruesomely, garishly killed priest impaled. Yeah, let's put it on the front page. It reminded me of Gore Verbinski, but like devoid of, you know, any of, you know, the, like Verbinski is a good visual storyteller. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. It had it had a similar kind of quality to the visuals, but they, whatever it is that Verbinski can do with those visuals, are not there. It's not here, you know. It's absent of that. It's like that's a good comparison because I like Gore, Gore Verbinski a lot. Um, some of his movies are good, some of them are bad, but like the visual language of it is never nonsensical. Right. And there was moments in this that, like the one I just said, that were yeah. like nonsensical, and I'm sitting there going, like, you obviously like. Like you, you know A to B. Like you're yeah, getting yeah. the A to B, no problem. But like, there's no, there's there's just nothing being told there. Yeah. Uh, whereas Verbinski, he would probably make the same shot selections generally. But like, like even in the third Pirates movie, which is like almost entirely just like blah, like, <laughs> but it's never gobbledygook. Like I, I'm always on board for all ten and a half hours of it. Yeah. And uh, I, but I don't know what that added thing is because i think you're right like this movie had a very like bobo cure for wellness uh uh lens to it yeah and uh but like cure for wellness is a is a favorite of mine right uh and whereas like even though the plot's pretty good the movie is gorgeous right and like at no point did i get that gorgeous feeling yeah, here but agreed. it's definitely of the same school i think i never made that connection i think you're right yeah uh, what is that? Zhuzh. That's the word I'm using. Zhuzh. Yeah, I don't know what, what it is because this movie does feel like nonsense and it's like hard to explain why. I mean, so the other thing that we need to talk about is that the script is credited to David Seltzer. Yes. David Seltzer is who wrote the original movie, The Omen. And based on my research, and I sourced this in a couple of different places, he was not involved in the remake of The Omen in any way, shape, or form. At all. As I understand it, it was an arbitration deal with yep. Writers Guild. Yep. Um, from what my research said, it was very minimal research, was that it was like deemed too similar. Yes. Which is weird because uh, maybe the rules are different now because I've seen so many remakes that are quite similar and yeah. you get the 
adapted by right you know right. like ad- adapted story from, by written by like yeah. something like that yeah yeah based on the original script yeah. the omen by david yeah. seltzer the omen by whoever yep. the and motherfucker the, and, was that made this you know I, I guess maybe as long as we are going to talk about this that is a fact i can find so why don't i find it while we're talking about it because i know i saw it but there was somebody that was hired to write this script. you know this is a script that was written by somebody that's not david seltzer somebody was hired for this um, and they didn't get credit through, uh, like you said, I, and in fact, uh, what's the podcast that you like to end script notes, right? Script Which notes, is, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I actually, I things? looked up that episode that was referenced in the Wikipedia yeah. because it was something that Craig Mazin dropped. Right. Um, I, I haven't listened to the script notes in quite some time, but that was always honestly my most favorite part of the show is when they would get into the ins and outs of the writer's guild. Because, like, it is fascinating because it's a very well-established union. And with that comes all of the different, you know, strings that you can pull with, you know, high, uh, high-quality unionization. And, um, Dan yeah, McDermott, but I, I don't understand the where this was. What is it? Dan McDermott is the Dan name. Dan McDermott. Yeah, he, he wrote the screenplay that, you know, uh, he gets no credit for here, basically. Um, Derm McDermott. Damn it. Uh, yeah. Uh, but anyway, I mean, I just think that's fascinating because it is, I mean, to to say nothing of the WGA arbitration that led to that, because I, you know, I don't know, enough I don't know about it. any of that stuff to, to really comment on it. I, I, I guess at face value seems bad that somebody, you know, didn't get credit for writing a script. But I do think it, this is a really weird case of like, it is very much like a beat for beat remake of that movie. There's so little to this that feels like there's any invention, you know, yeah. if anything, there's just minor it's just like clarifications. updates. There, yeah. There's like minor clarifications that like take away some of the mystery of that original script, you know? Mm. And otherwise it's like, and also it's just like the, it's the same beheading, but a different beheading method. Right. Yes. Um, oh yeah. We should talk about the deaths. I think they would be interesting to, but I, I just think like it is an interesting, weird case because it does feel like one of the poor choices this movie makes is being too similar to the original, actually. You yeah. know, it, it just it. it uh, the bonkers movie that Postlethwaite is in is the movie yeah. this should have been. Yeah, because uh, they by simultaneously trying to make it a big, classy, churchy picture like the original and a sleek, the unborn style picture from 2006. Uh, it, it those two things just are not compatible. Yeah. And it's like, they really just needed to go gonzo with it. They needed to just hit it hard. It also, it definitely, I mean, to me, if you're going to remake The Omen now, and I know we're now 15 years on from when even this remake came out, you know, but I think this would have been true in 2006 as well. Part of what works about the original movie, I think, is that that movie was made and came out in a time when I think we still largely identified Americans specifically as like a Christian nation. Oh yeah. Now only true Americans believe that. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> but, but do you, but I don't, no, I, I know what you mean. 2006, yeah. We are kind of distant from that larger national identity. I think and we're I, just generally post religion in, in a broad sense. Yes. And, and so I think, I think a remake of the Omen can still work, but I think it has to reckon with that. And oh, this yeah. does not try to reckon with that at all. You know, it actually fails at trying to reckon with it. I think it makes an attempt by having the, um, the omens listed at the beginning being things like 
the uh, is it the Challenger or Columbia yeah, Explosion, yeah, yeah. Uh, 9-11 and all 9/11. that. That was one <laughs> yeah. of those things where as soon as that happened, I like rolled my eyes because yep. I was like, OK, you're trying to update this. But you're, I knew immediately they weren't going to do anything with it. And they didn't. Yeah. And like that would have been a nice thing to tie into. Like, you know, I think a lot of us lost a little bit of that magical realism thought after something like 9-11. And yeah. I think culturally that took because the feeling of there is no God was very strong for a lot of people. Um, and I was like, welcome to the club bitches. Uh Um, the, uh, but yeah, like that, I think that there's, there's room there to take that contemporary post-religion idea and create horror out of reconciling the fact that no, these things that have caused us to lose our faith are actually (gasps) omens of the fact that this faith still is powerful Right. And the most dangerous thing we can do is ignore it and treat it like it's nothing. Yeah, that's fucking scary. Yeah. Like that's the angle that 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 a remake should should take of something like The Omen. But sure. yeah, it for this one to be you know post religion, it ends up trying to be like sleek and ghosty and demony, which is where we get those yeah. dream sequences, yeah. and it loses that weird religious mythology feel, which yeah. I think is essential. Yeah, and and like that original one still works in 2020. You know, we watched that oh, last yeah. year, and that still worked for me. Oh, and incredible. You know, I it, I maybe it's a little bit knowing it was made in that time, and so I'm a little willing to like let my brain. I, I don't know. Uh, yeah, you make concessions yeah, towards it, that mindset. Yeah, but yeah, exactly. Enjoy that perspective. You know, yeah. going into that movie. But I just think I do think you got to reckon with that if you're going to make this movie it, now, you know, and even I like if the way you use the word perspective. Have. This yeah. is a movie that doesn't really have any. Right. Right. Its yes. only perspective yes. is that the omen was a good movie and we'd like to take a stab at it. Right. Yes. Agreed. Yes. That's that's totally it. Yeah. Um, we should talk about the death scenes. We got to talk about the death yeah. scenes. Um, I actually have, because this is beyond high definition, yeah. I spent a fair amount of time last night going frame by frame so I could see the exact moment that David Thewlis was replaced by a dummy. Uh, dummy Thewlis. Dummy Because th- I got to say, that was... Uh, this movie is not good. And I would hesitate even to say that I enjoyed it. Yeah. But... Yeah. The moment of David Thewlis getting his head cut off is the Ooh. finest piece of cinema that has ever or will ever exist yep. forever. Yep. <laughs> like that was really well done. It really was well done. Very well done. And I think a couple of the deaths are worth talking about in uh, a similar light. Um, not all of them, but a couple of them are really couple of them worth are good. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I want to say this uh, about the Thewlis death. Please, because, you know, like. The cool thing about it—that is the highlight. That's the highlight. That's the whole reason to watch this movie. It invokes the Final Destination thing of the sequels. Um, The the mechanism through which he does it is shot cleanly, directed perfectly. It's cruel as fuck because we see the head disconnecting, and then we see not only his body in its death throes reconciling with the fact that it has no head, but then falling down the steps afterwards. It's beautifully done it's gruesome it's unsettling it carries the weight of death and it's also hilarious but they cap it off with the prime example of how the direction of this movie is missing something yeah because if you'll notice liev schreiber comes back sees his buddy laying there and realize that's the moment where he realizes this is real 
I gotta kill my kid. Right. And it's represented like after this beautifully like artistically shot just ballet of beautiful violence. Yeah. Right after uh, Thorne has said, no, this is fake. You sound crazy. I'm not killing my kid. Take those knives and fuck off. Yeah. And um, after he dies, it does this awful, awful, shocked, shaky cam zoom yeah. Yeah. up to Liev Schreiber's face as he realizes how downright fucked he is. Yeah. Smash cut to him on the plane home with the daggers in his lap. Yes. That smash cut is meant to be funny because we go, he just went from fuck these daggers to I'm clinging to them forever because I just realized that. And it doesn't play for that punchline at all. Yeah, yeah. I knew that that punchline's what was intended with the smash cut to those knives on his lap. And it has no energy. I mean, it made me so mad, especially because it, it was just a wet fart at the end of this like amazing, amazing sequence. Now that you say it, I can see how that, like, it didn't even occur to me that it was supposed to be a punchline. Exactly. And, and I think the larger problem with the movie is that it, it not that it needs to, but it has no sense of humor, like, at all. And, it and so if it's it going with the puppets a, and with that, yeah, and it's yeah, like, right. Eh. Uh, but it, you know, it, if it was going to land that, if it wanted to use that as a punchline, I'm into that. Like, give me that movie, but this is not that movie up to that point. You know what I mean? And I could fix that just by changing that shot. That awful shaky shot yeah. is one that makes uh, Thorne go, oh, fuck. What that shot needs for that punchline to work is Thorne looking pathetic. Yeah, yeah. He has to look pathetic. That has to be a moment where he goes, not just, oh, shit, I'm fucked, but I'm a dope. Yeah, because yeah. I threw those down there and did that. And if he looks silly in that moment, the smash cut to his lap which honestly should have had his face terrified in yeah, it yeah. as opposed to yeah. just zooming back. It, it, like all of the pieces are there and it's just this weird shot choice that just neuters the entire thing. Yeah. And it happens after, I, I'm not lying when I say that might be the best decapitation I've ever seen on film. Yeah, yeah. It's incredible. It is, it is like, yeah, it's like a moment of like tremendous high art in yeah. the most, you know, in a movie that could largely be described as content, there's just like that is high art there. And then right at the end of the high art, it has the opportunity for the greatest moment of fucking cinematic spooge imaginable. <laughs> and instead it just shits the bed. It, it it was so emblematic of what's wrong with the movie. And it sucks because it's at the cost of undercutting this like just sublime moment of horror. You are reminding me that the other thing I found funny in the movie is that he punches a dog in the face like four times. That that scene was fucking insane. He punches that dog over and over and over again. And then one of the last things that happens in the movie is he traps that dog in a wine cellar with another yeah. sort of like, you know, I was like, wow, the Leif Schreiber versus dogs movie is very good. Like, it's the best thing in this also, movie. Also, though, we should have had Chekhov's wine cellar. Yes, of because course. Because that moment where he rolls and pulls up the floor yes. and the dog goes into it, uh, I didn't know that existed. Yep. So there was absolutely no tension created in that moment. Yep. Um, it, I didn't feel shocked when it was like, like that moment should have been like, oh yeah, the wine cellar. Yeah. This guy knows what's up. But instead it was just like, oh cool, they have a trap door to a wine cellar. Yeah. Well, I have to get an, an exterminator down there before they go <laughs> check out the wine because there's a dog in there now. Yeah. That he just punched. Yeah, that yeah. was the scene at the at the cemetery yes the logistics of that drove me nuts too because it was it was because if you remember dogs do attack them at the cemetery in the yep. original and it's terrifying it has like a little bit of a 
a dated, ridiculous look, but this has a modern, ridiculous look. Yeah. That scene ends. It's chomping into his arm, and he can't escape. Yep. So Jennings comes up and removes his coat. Yes. Which allows him to escape. Yes. As if it was just biting his coat, even yep. though it was clear that it was ripping the flesh of his arm. Yeah. And it was like, oh, dear, taking off the coat isn't. None of this makes none of it makes sense. Yeah. The whole like, and I hate to be a nitpicker. You know that I don't give a shit about <laughs> this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, like, but because my question is, did it take you out of the movie? If it didn't, yeah. then it's not a problem. The problem with this movie is that it consistently yeah. took me out of the movie. It's also, I mean, this happens, right? It's like once a movie is not working for you, sometimes it's hard not to see the scenes, you know? It's so easy to just start getting like, yeah. Uh, But uh, I did also like, okay, I hate it. One of the best sequences in the original one is Damien on the bicycle tripping mom and then she falls, uh, you know, while she's cleaning. Yeah. I hated the Razor scooter and not even because it's a Razor scooter. Like, I think there's an impulse to be like, what a dumb way to update this fucking Razor scooter, blah, blah, blah. I just didn't think that sequence really worked in this movie. Like there was some, it did. I don't know. It didn't play the same way. It it didn't work. But when she falls and the the camera just falls with her and hits the, she hits the ground and you like, kind of like see her body shake on it. I was like, whoa, that's normally we cut away before that. And they, they just the extra like rattle of the body on the floor, like really made the knock cutting away. Like, oh God, okay, yeah. And I think that was also there on purpose to just remind you, like, she's pregnant, right? Just yeah. because she survives this fall, yeah. That impact is yeah. certainly detrimental to yeah. to a fetus, yeah. And like, yeah, I I agree because the whole like the whole buildup of Mrs. Baylock putting the scooter yeah. out, you know, all that yeah. stuff, yeah, did not build any of the dread that existed in the original version of this. Yeah. And I, if I remember correctly, Damien in the original definitely feels more like a pawn. Right. Being put in a situation that is a disaster for his mother. Right. Right. In this one, it was evil magic child doing evil right. magic child. Right. things. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, when she fell that, that fall is shot brilliantly. Yes. It's evocative of psycho. Yep. It is, uh, and it's evocative of the the original uh, omen. It, yeah, yep. that was so well done, so effective. And I would say the same about the the initial hanging in this movie. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. very well done. Yep. Uh, it's a very upsetting imagery. Uh, yep. The he, the corpse and body imagery in this movie is really good. upsetting. Well, and it, it's every time because the other big one that I I think is also really well done is the possible wait death. Um, you know, that one has a little more digital trickery in it, you know, that is, is may, could be, uh, uh, maybe criticized for, but I actually think all looks really good and does the thing that all of them do, which is he doesn't cut it. He takes advantage of the fact that you are used to seeing movies that cut away from these things at the last second. Yeah. And he, that is the most tension he creates in these, in this movie is for a split second when your brain thinks he's going to cut away and he doesn't. Oh yeah, he he does it every time, and it works every time, and it's the most tension this movie creates for a total of like four seconds throughout the movie. You know, it's the uh, what's it the elevator scene from two where you're like, oh yeah. man, he made it, and then it's like, no, right. no, we're actually gonna like bifurcate his body with cables and slow mo real quick. Yes, before yep. we end this. <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> yep. And it's effective. yeah, that was... it's, it's good, and I like that steeple death. I think that looks really great. Actually, yeah, that that is another like. That is another high art kind of thing where the sort of artistic nature of his frames work 
in the movie's favor in that moment. You know what I mean? Like the fact that the whole movie kind of, I really felt like the frames themselves had a very kind of like dense artistry to them. Like, especially the, the production design and the set design uh, and, and the, the color saturation saturation that was like very prevalent at this time in movies, I thought actually kind of worked in this movie in a way that it often is a little gross to me. Anyway, all of that stuff worked, especially for that. Like yeah. that particular frame of him just with all the glass in his body and sprawled oh, so out good. on the steeple. It's it looks great. It's it's a really, really nice frame. That's what we were saying earlier. Shot by shot. Yeah. This movie has a lot of really, really well done shots that hint at a director and a cinematographer yeah. and a yeah. team that know how to like compose. Yeah. But the assembly of it. Yeah. Sucks it of its energy. And, and I, I wish I knew more about filmmaking to try and pinpoint what it is. I, it's probably a lot of things. But yeah, I. Well, something I wrote in my review on Letterboxd uh, uh, that I, I don't know, I, I'm curious what you think about is I called this movie inevitable. And that's kind of the general feeling that the whole movie has is that all of this is inevitable. So the reason you've got no energy to Liev Schreiber and Julia Stiles scenes is because they're literally playing it like this is all fated to happen. Like, yeah, they're all pawns in this greater biblical scheme. Right. And so and because it's a remake of this movie that we're all familiar with and it's so beat for beat the same, it's all inevitable. Like these are the omens. They they will all come to pass. They will all be true. The devil's son will be born under the world and take over in politics and become the president's right hand man or whatever the fuck they imply with that last shot. Right. I part of me, as I describe it that way, it's like, oh, that's a choice. Like and, and maybe even an interesting one. If, if that is what they're doing, that the whole thing is meant to play out like this inevitable play yeah, across, yeah. you know, the ages or whatever. But even if that's a choice, it makes for a really fucking boring movie. You know what I mean? Like it just mm. that is a bad idea for like a visual medium for it to play like this sort of like inevitable play that has to happen. You know, I feel like in the original, a lot of the fear came from the slow realization of Thorn that perhaps his efforts are in vain. Right. Because there's these greater machinations, greater than he could ever imagine at play. And I think you're right that they tried to make that choice here. But in execution in the remake, it doesn't feel like the greater forces are that of the context of the movie. It feels like the greater forces are allegiance to what we are to expect from an Omen brand movie, you know, like, like everything feels perfunct, like everything feels dreaded in the original. Everything feels perfunctory in this one where it's like, we got to get through the motions. We got to hit the big hits. We got to do a couple little squeeches here. And yeah. And it, it doesn't feel like, Oh man, there are biblical forces at play. It feels like, Oh man, God is at war with uh, the producers. Oh man is the uh, uh, is the uh, man. Why can't I think of his name now? The Mel Brooks version of this movie is is the oh man. Oh man! (laughs) And instead of like the 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 knives of Megiddo, they would be like the knives of Lachaim or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Oh man, I want this to be a thing. Oh my god, the final challah. That's all um, I'm doing is just Mel Brooks uh, yes. Jew puns because yep. that's what he loves, <laughs> the Schwartz. Yep. Exactly. Um, and I was thinking about him the other day. He's like, what, like 350 now? Something, something like He's that. getting out there. And even though he has such life energy to him that I would expect him to live to be 120, 
I'm just so afraid of that news story that Mel Brooks, comedy legend and God who walks amongst men, has passed. Yeah. And I really, and even though, like, you know, I, he he doesn't have enough of an active output to like for it to be a current loss in terms of my relationship with him, I feel like the joy of him existing at the same time of me is something that is a common undercurrent in just the the, the life. And I'm going to be yeah. very sad when he goes. Yes, I, I love me, me too. Books. I know. Uh, guy's a legend. It, truly, like one of one of few living legends at uh, at this point, you know. And he like um, produced like Elephant Man and like Oh yeah. Roller Babies, like all oh, these it, classics. Is I mean his contributions to independent film can like not be understated, you know. Yeah. Um but He's got uh, his classics like Dracula, Dead and Loving It. I love that movie. I loved it as a kid too, but mostly because yeah. it starred Brian from Wings. Uh-huh. Uh, so, I mean, uh, my big takeaway from this movie is that David Thewlis is fucking great. That's my big, big takeaway from the Omen remake. Love David yeah. Thewlis. I think David Thewlis is great. I think you would really enjoy season three of Fargo if you, if, uh, Oh, is he in it? And, uh, yes, he is. Uh, actually I'll say on it hard. Uh, that whole season is a long term back and forth battle of wills between, cocky disgusting snaggletoothed gangster david thulis and margie adjacent small town cop riff carrie coon Ooh, that sounds great it's season three is is i wouldn't say maligned but it's not as beloved and i mean season two is like the best season of television of anything i've ever seen yeah yeah so like it it, three is naturally going to be tough but like when i think about that show Three is season three is what sticks with me the most, and it is always some weird little acting choice that Thewlis made that made me hate his scummy, disgusting character <laughs> even more. He's yeah. real good in it. I yeah. and that's a show that the seasons are disconnected. Uh, right. Yeah. So like you could, you could just watch that season if you're looking for a shot of the Thule. Yeah. But uh, yeah, yes. man, he he is really like kind of the saving grace of this movie. Because even when nothing else is working, he is just quite entertaining to yes. to look at and be around. As you said, he he is the David Warner equivalent. You know what I mean? Not that that movie like relies on David Warner in the same way that this movie relies on Thulis, but Warner brings a sort of like, oh, there's a fun energy to the movie now. Yeah. You know, and, and, and that's what Thulis is bringing. Yeah, yep, yep, yeah. All the all the nerves. Yep. Um, have you seen Naked? No. Uh, Mike Lee movie from back in the day. Mm-hmm. Uh, David Thewlis. It's it's definitely like a uh, like a with nail and eye style thing, okay. or uh, you know where it's just like a we're just hanging out with this fuck. Yeah, and he's just a fucking piece of shit, abusive dude, drug addict, whatever. But it's like Thewlis getting to do an art house pick that lives and dies by his performance. And I think it's I think it's Mike Mike Lee. Is that the name I'm getting? Um, highly recommend it's it's absolutely fantastic Sounds good. and it's one that uh i think uh you you would definitely enjoy it's from 93 yeah mike lee written and directed by Ooh. and um yeah he's just a fucking sex freak but uh i don't know one day uh watch watch naked and shame back to back and then <laughs> never have any sex in your life ever again because yeah. you just feel dirty <laughs> but uh both really good but if you like Thulis, that's that's a all right and he's like yeah. much younger in it he's like a, you know yeah, I would yeah. say he's a kid now. He's probably younger than either of us are now. Isn't it? Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Fair. Um, you want to do a list? I think I'm, I'm, I'm done. Um, yeah, I'm good. I, 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 I still stand takeaway. by what I say in terms of 
I am never, I know there's a lot of people that are wholesale against remakes. Um, I am not. I think that in that oh, yeah. weird glut of, of horror remakes, like the Hills have eyes is the new one is like a fucking classic. It's really yeah. good. Um, like there's a lot that I, I even liked the new Amityville. It's really fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. very understated, not understated, but underseen, uh, not understated at all. Underseen Ryan Reynolds performance. Mm-hmm. And, um, Oh no! What's that actress's name? She was in Thirty Days of Night. I don't know. Hold on, let me look up Thirty Days of Night. Yeah, she's she's one of those actresses we didn't do right by. There's um, a lot of those. Melissa George. She's like a Malin Ackerman, where you go, "Oh wow, you're actually good," but uh, sorry, you're older than thirty three now. Gotta go. You know, like that that old mm-hmm. Hollywood chestnut. Uh, oh I yeah, okay. Liked her. Yeah, I, I actually think she's really good in a lot of things, but she's aged out. I guess shame, shame that that's how things seem to work. Yeah, but um, yeah, like that's a good one. I'm not wholesale against remakes. Um, I think it's easier to ignore a remake you don't like than to sit and wonder what could have been. Yeah, um, I am always down for for uh, for them to take a stab, and sometimes Same. it's awesome, sometimes it's not. This time, it very much. Was not. not, but I really do respect the swing. I th- I don't think anything was phoned in. I do think most things weren't thought out. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's a great. That's way how I put it. it. Yeah, and so I, you know, it it it's fine. It it's probably about as good as you could expect of a remake of The Omen, all things considered. But I think The Omen could be remade and really, uh, like really nicely. So if if someone were to do it. Yeah. Hell, I'd like to see what's his name uh, that did the Suspiria remake. Sure. Um, uh, Guadalupe. Guadagina, Guadagnino. Yeah. Guadagnino. Lucas Guacamole. Uh, <laughs> his thing. You know, like, did you see the Suspiria remake? Yeah, I think we might have seen that screening together. Yeah, I think so. I think you're, but, like, to me, that's how a remake's done. That The my, mileage may vary on that, but, like, yeah. if you're going to try and fuck the Suspiria, which is unfuckswithable, uh-huh. that's how you do it and, and i think yeah. that's you know it's smart so there's a lot i admired about that movie for sure yeah um, but yeah i am i am ready so we want to pitch some horror remakes yes. and attach them to some directors yeah and i'll start because you gave me a nice place to start there uh i mean i i feel like the impulse here is to like find movies that didn't work the first time and try and remake them that's always like in our head you know people are always yeah, playing yeah, yeah. for that as soon as i sat down to make this i did not want to do that I totally get the impulse studios have to go like, what's my favorite movie? Let's do it again. You know, I ended up in the same thing. None of the movies that I have listed are ones that I feel need to be remade in any way. They're just ones that as soon as I paired a director, I was like, that's an attempt I'd like to see made. Yes. So here's my first one. And I'm just going to launch off your Suspiria and that remake. I am a huge fan of opera. Uh, Argento's, you know, crazy operatic opera movie. Mm-hmm. And I think Sam Raimi directing a remake Ooh. of opera would be fucking incredible. I mean, he's obviously, his stuff is so indebted to that kind of, uh, uh, you know, class of filmmaker anyway. Like, I, I, I oh, think yeah. that, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, these guys in Raimi's energy in the first place. But that's uh, color almost... scheme aside, I would say that Drag Me to Hell is probably the closest thing we've had to a giallo right? from an American studio. It, for yeah. sure. And so I just I kind of like the idea of going like, here's an expressly, you know, big giallo movie, like do what you do with that. 
And in particular, I think opera is actually something he would like kind of excel at because he mm-hmm. is so operatic himself and his like weird visual ideas and stuff. So I, I still got to see opera. Oh, it's the but best, like, man. It's so based on things like like I would watch a Sam Raimi deep red. I yeah, would do that yeah. in a second, you know, yep. so like, yeah, I, w- I could definitely see that match. Yeah, uh, I think it would be really fun. It would be cool. Uh, do you want me to like run my whole list down or do you want to trade back and forth? Yeah, let's trade back and forth because I have more than five, so I can just okay, cool. rattle some off. Um, so, I, you know what? I will actually start with kind of that thing I make I for uh, uh, Lucas Guacamole. Uh-huh. I would love to see him do The Bride of Frankenstein. Oh, interesting. I would like because the one thing that Suspiria, the remake, feels to me is big and imposing. Yeah. But not in a heightened, I'm a giant monster way, in a holy shit, that cathedral was built a thousand years ago way. Yeah, yeah. And that's the vibe I get from a lot of James Whale's set pieces. Uh-huh. And, um, you uh-huh. know, I, I look I at like something that. like Call Me By Your Name, and I go, this guy can do an atypical romance. Yeah. Um, you know, he's worked with cannibals, so he knows horror. <laughs> and... um. No, but like, but for real, like the 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 tormented longing between Frank and Bride yeah. is something that I think could be milked, uh, given the runtimes that he likes, and his classical structure would be something that would suit that. So, I'm with it. That's a that's a good Luca idea. Luca Guadagnino. Guadagnino. I, I I actually lament I do not know how to pronounce his last name. I, I think it's Guadagnino. 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 Yeah. I feel like the GN in there back to back has the yang yang to it. But I don't know. I'll just have to look up an interview where someone says it. This is great because this gives me another jumping off point. Uh, Because you brought up James Whale. And I have become a big fan of his movie, The Old Dark House. Okay. Which I do think was remade at some point. I think there's at least a Hammer version of this movie that was made. Um, But so have you seen The Old Dark House, Dan? I have not. It's okay. been on my shutter list forever. Um, I didn't even realize that that was an older movie based on its icon until you had told me. Yeah, uh, it, it's a James Whale movie, and it is about like people on a rainy night who break down on the side of the road and need a place to kind of like hole up for the night. And so they just knock on the door of the only house in the area that they kind of like, you know, get run off the road. And it's a mostly kind felt it's the guy that plays dr pretorius in uh, frankenstein a mostly nice guy answers the door but he's got a weird fucking family that also lives in this house with him and so now these quote-unquote normies have to spend the night in this house full of weirdos in order to sort of like survive until morning and it's basically a weird family movie. You know, it's like a movie about yeah. a weird family. And so I thought Trey Edward Schultz would probably make a pretty yeah. interesting version of a modern, you know, people just a, a couple of normies have to spend a night in a weird house with a weird family. That's a really, really good choice. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good choice. I, I and think he would that... make it like the proper level of like fucked up but yes. also kind, like, kind of weirdly enjoyable and yeah kind of funny yeah. like because that's the thing is uh you know james whale has a sense of humor all of his movies do and the old dark house might be the most like expressly comedic of the ones i've seen it's pretty funny but it's also really creepy because they are like such a weird group of people so i feel like schultz would be like he would nail that tone of like this is pretty funny, but I do not want to spend time with these people. Yeah, but you should be scared. Yeah. Well, obviously, the guy who answers the door is going to be that actor we love from all of his movies. 
Oh, Geiger uh, counter that guy. Yes, yes. Um, that would be him. Uh, and also, it just occurred to me now that I have to watch this movie because it is clearly the blueprint for Rocky Horror, which is oh, probably very, yes. very much in my heart. Yes. Yep. Um, there's a movie called Shaitan. Have you ever heard of that? No. It's a weird family movie. Okay. I like that. Okay. That's a good term. I like that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, weird yeah. family movie. But yeah, I mean, most of the family, her. both male and female, is just played by Vincent Castle. Whoa, interesting. Yeah, it's it's real weird. I remember enjoying it. Like I, I don't think it's like like crazy good, but I, yeah. I watched it maybe a decade ago and was like, this is fucking weird. Yeah. Um, and I think that it might be on Netflix or Shutter. Okay. Definitely worth checking out as weird family movies go. Tell me the title again, Dan. Um, it is called Shaitan. Shaitan. Uh, yeah, it's Satan, but in another, whatever, I think it might be French, okay. but it's S-H-E-I-T-A-N. I believe okay. that's how it's spelled. All right. Cool. All right, I want Paul Thomas Anderson to remake Hell House. Whoa. What? What is Hell House? That's the one, uh, it's the Richard Matheson story. Yes. Um, we've seen it at, uh, we saw it at, uh, exhumed like twice, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, it's the one it's got, uh, uh, Roddy Piper in it. Yes. yes. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I would switch that out for burnt offerings as well. Either uh, of those is fine damn. because that type of movie, I think could be, I, basically this came out of, I recently rewatched Phantom Thread. Yes. And I was like, there's a weird, like, gothic trapped in a house sort of thing going on in weird in uh, Phantom Thread. And um, I would like to see the way he captures it, but for horror. But something like Burnt Offerings is like, like, there's weird elements to both that and Hell House that are funny, but only because we're offering old movie concessions that I think if they leaned into the humor purposefully would really sing. And I think he's the man for the job. Yeah, I your choice is way better than mine. I actually wrote burnt offerings down. I have seen this movie because you recommended it to me. Uh, I own it on Blu-ray and love it. Uh, and my choice for it ended up being Edgar Wright because oh I, yeah, I feel like burnt offerings has a lot of very creative in-camera work. Yeah, but is mostly built on like good character dynamics, and I ju- and is very British, and I feel like. Edgar Wright would be kind of this perfect synthesis of those things, trying to bring a kind of like modern lens to it. And you know, he's a fan of that movie. You gotta be. Gotta he's be. gotta be. But I, I actually think your movie. choice Edgar... makes your choice makes more sense to me. Ultimately, I think it's the more American choice. Yeah, yeah you yeah. know, it depends on the movie because I think both of these movies are ones that I would like to see and would be excited about, but they'd be very different. I, I couldn't say which one's better. Yeah. I would put Edgar Wright on a remake of. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce it right, but I know it as V, V-I-Y. Yeah, Vi, V, yeah, yeah. V, have you seen that? I've not. I'm looking forward to watching it. I think the Corey last like... act of that movie is some of the coolest, most effective in-camera stuff I've ever seen. It's really, really cool. cool. And it's like kind of a silly movie until yeah. it's not. Yeah. That's where I would put Edgar Wright. But All right. I could see him doing a, uh, excuse me, a, a Burn Offerings or even a Hell House. Yeah, yeah, I dude, I do think PTA like that makes sense to me that he could make like a just sort of creepy trapped in a house movie really well, you know, that and also has kind of a sense Wright, of humor about it. They're good at like at like bippy bappy wordplay. Yeah, it's fun to listen to. And and I don't mean this as a knock to like Aaron Sorkin. Yeah, but like it's fun to listen to, but it actually feels real. Yeah. Whereas like Sorkin's fun to listen to, but like you accept that it's heightened. Yes. Um. I think 
Wright and and Anderson are actually kind of similar in that regard. Yeah, I, that that's a really good point. I, I, yeah. Oh, I, I like that we both thought to try yeah. and figure that type of movie out with a director today. We want to see the same movies. That's, yes. the, that's yes. what it comes down to is we want to see the same movies. Uh, throw, you can go ahead and throw out another one since I also piggybacked there. All right. I want Nacho Vigalondo to redo Dead Ringers. That is that is a five-star idea that should be greenlit tonight. And like, you know I mean, what? It can still have the same cast. Yes. <laughs> yep. That's a great idea. Right? That's yes. like, I, assume, I was like, because I was sitting there going like, what what could Vigalando do and have fun with? And I said, oh, he's a big fan of, even if it's like a basic story, he's got to do a gimmick. Yes. And there ain't no more gimmick more classic than actor playing two people, which, frankly, I'm like kind of tired of, yes. is, is the duplicated actors. Yeah. But like Dead Ringers is one that I don't think is ever going to... F- like it, it's just always going to be magic to me, and Vigilando can capture that. Well, and also, so we're now living in the age of oh, you just actually have two actors on screen and digitally replace one of their faces. Yeah. But Dead Ringers was made at a time when we were still doing you got to shoot everything twice and just like overlay the images. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? At least I assume that's how that movie was made. Um, and I would imagine that Vigilando would want to do that. Yes. He would not want to do the current version of that. He would want to do the, I'm going to put the same actor in this frame, you know? Yes. And he would do it in a way that, like, would take quite literally, like, actors running behind the camera right. to, to reblock and, re, you know, right. get to their new spot. Yeah, I, I, as soon as that clicked, I was like, that's kind of, it's just too perfect. Yep. Too, I, too I, perfect. I really, really like that idea. I, w- I would love to see that. And, by the way, I also think that that material is like makes sense to me in the uh, you know the pantheon of Vigalondo material. As oh, well. totally. You know what I mean. I think it's very it's very adjacent to some of the things he was thinking about in Colossal. Yep. Um, yeah, and and I think it's also the type of movie that uh, you could probably get away with a Dead Ringers update every twenty years, just because the way. The the way that we just are constantly reshaping power structure, structures based on immutable characteristics of humans is something that's very much at the heart of like the gender politics of the movie, yeah, uh, the ego politics of the yep. movie, and that's something that's always shifting and growing, and I think is something that I don't think will or can ever be perfected. the The perfection comes from always looking for the change, and so I think that that's a story that can update nicely to whatever present era it's in. Yeah. I think Vigilando's got the the thematic dexterity to to really rip that. Yeah, dude, I I think that's a fuck it. That's a great pull. Um, so Tori and I, Tori and I watched a Hammer movie this week that I really loved called Countess Dracula. Oh, I haven't seen that seen one. This? Okay, so I know what Countess Dracula looks like because yes. it's iconic, but I've not seen the movie. It's wonderful. It yes. starts totally dry and slow the way all hammer movies do but it builds into this almost like high wire comedy act where this woman that is old because it, it, it's a it, you know it's called countess dracula but it's actually a bathory story so okay. it's it's the woman that like supposedly bathed in blood to keep herself young yeah um and so i watched recently yeah whatever i was watching so, something recently that invoked bathory yeah, and, and and so the idea is that it's like this older woman 
basically has to kit this older this older woman is about to like spend a bunch of time with her daughter and this younger good-looking man is going to court her daughter and she sort of accidentally realizes that blood will keep her young like will make the old will make her young again so she literally has to basically kidnap her own daughter in order to keep her out of the picture so that she can start murdering people and bathing in their blood thus making herself young enough to court her daughter's boyfriend as her daughter that's insane it's it so occurred to me blood from stone is the movie that referenced oh yes the yep, bathrooms right. yeah you're right um and it is it becomes this like high wire comedy act of this older woman having to constantly find people to kill in order to stay young in order to keep herself like involved with this younger man it gets like so wild and weird it's really fun it's like a really really just good fun kind of horror movie that is about like you know female agency and power i would say in an interesting way and anyway well, it sounds to also be about like the way we improperly weigh youth and beauty in terms yes. of being a value in in a way what it made me think of as i was trying to sit here and think of like okay like because honestly i i kind of reverse engineered a lot of this list i was trying to figure out like not just like what horror movies do i like enough that i'd want to see them remade but more like who's working right now that I'm really interested in that I would like to see, you know, take on a property that, that I already like. And what I ended up thinking about was um, her, her name is Emerald Fennel who directed oh, yeah. promising young woman. Yeah. And Countess Dracula. I don't know. As I was trying to reverse engineer this and figure out like, who do I want to see more work from? I really, really liked promising young woman. And I keep thinking about it. And I think she's like a really good director that brings like a lot of, you know, th there's a lot of energy to that movie that feels very unique to her as a director. Yeah. And to me, if you're going to make, if you're going to remake Countess Dracula, I don't know why you would again do it as a period. You know, all the Hammer movies are period pieces. Yeah, yeah. I don't and know it's why. Because she comes out of, she's on that show. She's on a, a period. Uh, Killing Eve, show. I think, right? Oh, no. I know what you mean. Um, Isn't Emerald Fennell an actress on, yes, on like, Downton Abbey or something? I, yes. I'm probably just putting The Crown. Together. She's on The Crown, I think. She's on The Crown, yeah. Yeah. So, like, she definitely, like, I'm sure has some hammer knowledge. Well, but, yeah, I, I would very much like to see that with the energy of Promising. Because Promising Young Woman was awesome, but the energy is just what... Yeah. Like, the fuck you, I don't care what you think, this is my movie energy is so good on that. And I, I just kind of think, like, either... If you're going to remake Countess Dracula, you either... Keep it a period piece, but do it as a Marie Antoinette period piece. You know, like do it with the punk yeah. rock energy of now. Or you just said it, man. Like, I actually think that Fennel would be a good mark for like somebody that could figure out how to bring this story into now and make it about a, a you know, a vain aging woman that realizes killing other young women keeps her young. Oh, like, yeah. You know, Imagine a, a spinster, like a, uh, a kept woman who had a rich husband that kind right. of just took care of everything, but just only kept her as an accessory. He's now dead. And now she is finding a situation where she yes. can be young again. Great. Has the yes. resources. It's a good pitch. Yeah. That'd be amazing. Yes. So I, I just, I was trying to, I don't know. I was trying to reverse engineer from a filmmaker that I, I liked, you know, very recently. And this felt right. This felt like a good marriage of material and, and director. Nice. Yeah. Nice. I'm into that. Um, all right, I'll throw another one at you. Uh, while we got the lady directors in, um, I would like to see Karen Kusama 
Mm-hmm. And this is based entirely on the strength of her underseen and probably my favorite movie of hers, Destroyer. Yeah, yeah. With Nicole uh, Kidman. Nicole Kidman, Kidman. One, yeah. Did you see that? No, I need to. I think you would really, really like it. It's yeah. a very, very good movie. But I would like to see her do a remake of a not very good but interesting concept Romero movie that no one knows about, Bruiser. Oh, I've never seen Bruiser. Bruiser is the story of a guy who just essentially wakes up inexplicably with all of his identifying characteristics removed. His face is now unrecognizable. It's like a white mask over his face. He doesn't have fingerprints. He doesn't have anything. He is essentially somebody who is now untethered from responsibility or being recognized. And he takes this as a call to get even with the deficits in his life as brought on by other people. Mm. Um, I remember watching it and just being like, ah, you know, it's whatever. This is, this is Romero's getting old and it's kind of dig the premise. It's a cool premise, and like I can still picture the mask. I would really like to watch it again. I was maybe like 17 when I watched yeah. it. It was like a blockbuster pick. Mm-hmm. But similar to Destroyer, it's one where we follow somebody and we think we know everything about them and we think we're on the up and up. We follow this damaged person who's on like a very personal mission. Mm-hmm. And it's only as we exist through this mission that we realize the full breadth of why they're doing what they do mm-hmm. and and like just really where we are in this story. Uh, like this is a not necessarily a one for one match, but like the the fun thing about old boys when you learn mm-hmm. like, oh, the little revenge story that I'm following is actually just this tiny little part of a much larger tapestry. Right. And like both of these movies have that as sort of a, a plot catalyst in okay. it. Yep. And, um, but I don't know. And it's just, I remember it being like a very, uh, like simultaneously popping and brooding movie, which is kind of what I think Kusama yeah. does. Like the invitation pops, but yep. that is a really intense movie to watch. Yes. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that she could do a really cool thing with bruiser. I love that. As she's actually one of the people I was trying to think of a movie for and just couldn't like get my brain to, to find the movie. So I, I oh, love nice. this. This is good. Yeah. I think it's fun that we went that way. We're yeah. like directors into the thing. So this is my last one. And I know you said you probably got a few more, but um, I will, this is like my big number one. I, I, as soon as you pitch this idea, I have I, I keep I always tell people if I could ever remake a movie, I would remake Herschel Gordon Lewis's Color Me Blood Red. Yes, I know you love this movie. I love it is this a great movie. Concept. Uh, yes, it's about a painter that finds out that red that blood is the perfect shade of red for his paintings and gets famous on using people's blood as paint, even though nobody knows that's why they're making him famous. So anyway, he's a painter that becomes a serial killer, essentially, just so he can paint with people's blood. I love this concept. I think it's fun, it's dumb, it it is a movie that should the the thing that works so well about the movie is the manic energy of the lead. It's like a movie about mania, you know, a guy that just starts getting more and more manic as he gets further down this thing. I think the softy brothers should fucking make color me blood red. Cause all I could think about when I started trying to think about what does this movie look like now was uncut gems. Yeah. It was a guy just speeding down a path into like a very bad place because he thinks he's getting some kind of reward out of it, you know? Same goes for Good Time. Yep. I mean, same goes for, I mean, this isn't Safdie's, it's Safdie adjacent Frownland. I went okay, through the whole Safdie catalog when they did that Criterion thing. Yeah, yeah. they're like, they excite me greatly, but yeah. all of their work. Uh, is it called Heaven Knows What or Heaven that Knows What, right. I believe is yeah. the one? 
it's like a junkie romance, but it's like yeah. people on the edge and hurtling towards the abyss. Yep. Um, oh, that's, that's a good idea. I think they would be awesome for it. And and by the way, that would make it the highest. It would be the biggest gulf between original and remake you've ever seen in quality. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? Oh, yeah. But I, I imagine that they are dudes who love some H.G. Lewis. Oh, probably. Because he's know, got that punk rock. Let's just fucking make a movie energy. Oh yeah, yeah. That's dude. That was the the best thing. If you can, it might even still be on the Criterion Channel. I, I've seen every Safdie movie. Yeah, and I've now seen almost all of their shorts. Mm-hmm. I've seen. If only... you can look up their shorts, yeah. There's some serious like, we're making a movie today, and all we have to make this movie is energy. Yeah, that's yeah, all. Yeah. That's the only resource we have. There's so much of that, and it is—it's like infectious. Like yeah. you come out of them going, "Shit, I have to do something. I have to create." Yeah, that's cool. It's yeah. great. That's, that's an awesome. That's choice. my big pitch. I want that movie. Yeah, that's a good one. All right, I'll—I'll I'll just do these other real quick. This one, since you haven't seen the movie, and uh, you should see the movie, and it requires that you know nothing about it. I think Lynn Ramsey could remake Martyrs. Okay. Um, Martyrs was already remade once. Yep. As I understand it, uh, unsuccessfully. So. Okay. But uh, the original Martyrs is something special. You should yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah. Um, I just watched Beyond the Black Rainbow a couple nights ago. Yes. And it was one of the coolest movies I've ever seen. Yep. And I think that Hellraiser, but really any Clive Barker property, would be well served in the hands of Panos Cosmatos, which as I look at my note on my phone, has autocorrected to, to Pants Cosmatos. Awesome. Uh, um, totally agree like totally totally agree i think the internet is on board with this actually this is like a i think a meme that floated around after mandy was like uh, why okay. is he not making a hellraiser movie honestly mandy's the one that that made me make that connection yeah. more so than beyond the black yeah. rainbow which by um, the way as, just because you just saw it and i haven't seen it since it came out in theater i saw that at philadelphia film festival many many years ago beyond oh, the black right rainbow. on you can see it on the big screen yep that was so wicked it was great except the thing i remember most about the movie is that it builds to a finale that just feels totally disconnected from the rest of the movie. How did that feel watching it recently? I, like I've been dying to rewatch it to see if I would think of it differently. Knowing what I was getting into. Yeah. And knowing these criticisms of it and having seen Mandy, I didn't really have that problem at all. Okay. But I will admit to this when it ended, I felt satisfied. I felt like I knew the story that was told I felt like I generally got the plot that was told. And then I went on Wikipedia and just read the plot description and realized that I was like 87% there. And there was little things that I didn't notice that I thought were just design that were actually meant to mean something more. And so really, this is a good thing. What this means is this movie is going to be rewatchable. I bought it because it was $7 and I was trying to get above the the free shipping threshold. And, um, and so, you know, and I got that Mandy Steelbook. Ooh, baby. Yeah. Oh, baby. Cheddar Goblin. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, I, I honestly, uh, it was, it was very cool to watch in the wake of Possessor. Yeah. It was, uh, very cool to watch having seen Mandy. And I think that had I watched it 10 years ago when it came out, yep. when I was 26, yep. I would have probably had the exact same reaction as you where I go, that was cool, but it kind of lost me. Yeah, it, like, I remember it melting my fucking face off, and then just by the end of it being like, huh, you know? Yeah. And, and having that feel so strange to be so into something, only to kind of at the end be like, eh, okay. 
you know? I think now that we have Mandy, now that you yeah. know what to expect, now that you've seen lose, now yeah. that you've yeah. seen, uh, you know, like I think all of these things serve to just like, I think if you watched it again, you wouldn't have that feeling. I'm hoping um, so. Cause I knew to look for that feeling. Yeah. And that's why I think I was able to avoid it. So it's yeah. not necessarily the most fair assessment, but uh, it's a movie that I am going to watch again. It's a movie that I listened to the score of three yeah. times over today while I worked. Nice, um, dude. Also, uh, how about that? Good. How about that sequence that like I remember when uh, uh, you showed me Under the Skin, and and there's the imagery from that that you have always touted as being like really horrifying and and very it affecting. Me, yeah. And and I agree. And I and I to me, I think the first the first time I've ever seen it, I think, was in Beyond the Black. Beyond the Black Rainbow has a sort of similar sequence in it where the yeah, guy there's a gets, flashback. Yeah. To the to the 60s. Yes. And it's a flashback to like the. Either creation or dissolution of that leading lady's mother. Right. And it cuts to black and white. Is that the scene yes. that you're talking about? Yes. It's real true. Yeah, that shit was dark. And it was one of those two where I was watching it. And then Jenna came home from work. Yes. And she like walked in and looked at the TV. And I was like, I hope she doesn't ask what I'm watching. Because I can't get her yeah. to this yeah. in any reasonable amount of time. Like, it's yep. just not going to happen. <laughs> yep. But uh, yeah, yeah I, that, it was very unsettling. And when I saw Under the Skin, I was like, I, A, that, I mean, that movie is incredible. And I love that movie. And I love that stuff in that movie. But it was nice to be like... This is cool. I think I kind of know where this like start. You know, I can thread yeah. this needle backwards a little bit, which is cool. They are of a of a piece, and I would put lose into that. Yeah, piece agree. In terms of like a visual sense. Yeah. Um, because like even watching Beyond the Black Rainbow, I didn't get the sense that there was like a lot of money on the screen. Right. Just a lot of like ingenuity. Ingenuity. And yeah. It was just real good, and it looked sharp. Yeah. Um, nice. Give me I more got two picks. more to drop on you. Yeah. Um, you still haven't seen Vox Lux? Shame on you. But yes. director Brady Corbett, co-star yep. of Mysterious Skin, I think he could do a really good job with Duel. Oh, the Spielberg movie, right? The Spielberg movie, because I like that Spielberg movie quite a bit. Yeah. Um, but it's the kind of movie that I've seen riffed on a hundred different times. Sure. We've seen things like, I mean, fuck Jeepers Creepers even. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, sh- shudder to mention it. Um, <laughs> but like Joyride, yep. uh, things like that. Like, it's definitely a concept that can be expanded upon and milked and mm-hmm. made dark. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I like about Vox Lux is that it's a very, very straightforward matter of fact movie Mm. there's narration by willem dafoe in that movie he's not in it but there's just narration Mm. by him and it's just cold clinical narration that tells you exactly what's happening Mm -hmm. and like that's something that i always admired about the movie duel is that it is just a very straightforward story we don't actually get to know much about anything beyond this cat and mouse tale yeah and i think that that could be written into play and I also think that uh, you know it, it could be left lean and done sharp. And I don't know. I was just thinking about the visual style of Vox Lux, and I was like, something about Duel makes that work to me. I don't know. I, I don't like know if this I can even really justify it. Right. My number one though is the one that I'm most favorite. This one I actually I, I didn't rank these, but this is like the number one choice. Yeah. This is a movie that should not and could not be remade. Because to do anything that isn't this movie would be to misunderstand this movie. Because the thing about House is that House 
like it's it's a perfect movie if you ask yes. me. And you mean- and it's one that you couldn't remake because by recognizing its existence in your movie, you'd ruin it. Yeah. By not recognizing its existence, the question would be, what are we doing here? Yes. There's like no way to do it. But if anyone's going to try, I think it should be the Daniels. Okay. The two gentlemen who made a uh, Swiss army man. Yes. One of whom who went to make the death of Dick long, which no one saw and is incredible i'm like dying to see that movie but you kind of can't see that movie right i it like never came out i think you can probably itunes rent it i think that's how i might be available now okay but i will say definitely don't read a single word about it at all yeah at all yeah um and you might already know too much no i don't i literally don't (laughs) that's what i mean don't learn anything Uh but um it was, uh, yeah, I just, they're the type of guys that it's like, if anyone can make such a unique, tremendous, in a vacuum weirdness yeah. that doesn't have to lean on anything else, it is perhaps the Daniels. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to do Howzoo again, you almost have to figure out how to do a movie that feels like Howzoo, but is not Howzoo. Is not. Yeah. And honestly, that's like sort of what happened with the Suspiria right, remake. Right. That's one of yeah. the things I respect about it so much is that like they really did that thing where they they like covered a song in a new genre. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's that's tough to do. And you always get stuck between carbon copy of a song that is re- is just a, a solid cover mm-hmm. or we're going to do a punk cover or this, you know, like that. And so I think with House, it has to be a complete genre shift. But, like, you also have to change the lyrics on this one. You also have yeah. to, like, everything has to be new. But if anybody can tap into that same surreal weirdness that doesn't feel uh, like you're detached from the movie entirely, which Haosu impossibly does right. for its entire run light, runtime, it's yeah. kind of phenomenal. Yeah, uh, I think that they are worthy of giving it a shot. I, I mean, only on the strength of Swiss Army, man, I can agree with it. You know what I mean? It's like I, that is the only movie of theirs I've seen. And if you were to try and pitch me who should remake Hazu, because by the way, that was a movie that I looked at on my list of like, huh, could somebody do that? And immediately it was like, nah, I'm not even going to try and think. It's of not who possible. Could. Yeah, I'm not even going to try and think of who could. But you've already convinced me. Like, this is the one pitch that I think kind of could does... work. Yeah, yeah, yep. It could work. At the same time, like, it's. I like houses is one of my like that is really like one of the best movies. It might not be like the one of the best movies, objectively speaking, but it's like there's nothing like it. And unfortunately, that also means there can be nothing like it. Right. And and that's that's a great, truly awesome thing. I think it's yes. something that all artists should chase. Yeah. And, and I think we we try to have, you know, right. Uh, like honestly, House is up there with 2001 in movies that it's like you can't pitch that. You just got to let the maniacs do their thing yes. and hope it comes yeah. together. Yep. Um, and so yeah, it, it's with the full caveat that no one could or should ever do this. Yep. Um, if someone was going to, I think the Daniels could make a valiant effort. I like it. That's a good pitch. That's good because, like I said, that was a movie I thought about, and I was like, nah. And yeah. uh, you you already you found you found some names that well I had the same thought of nah and then I was like wait a minute this is pretend let's play yes. with this <laughs> yeah. like I don't have the money to make this I have forty dollars right uh, Although, then again watching house like I think I really only need sixty dollars that's true that I have a pre- cat yeah and she does weird shit on camera all the time <laughs> um. 
Well, this was a delight. I, by the way, I don't know if you know this, but I believe we've done this list before, very, very early in this show. I found we did, an old. We did it with Fright Night. That's okay. That's what I thought. I had like a. I found an old Letterbox list of mine with these. But we didn't do it with directors necessarily. We, didn't. we pitched plots. I also plots. I also chose entirely different movies without even having to look. I like yeah. looked at my list afterwards just to like be sure. And uh, you know, I think my taste has just like grown so much in that time that I, I had a whole different list of movies that I would have wanted to see. We've been doing this a long time, and we each watch what like seven thousand movies a year. So there's more knowledge to pull from. I'm already like up to almost sixty this year, which is insane. Nice. That's like way more than I've ever done. Try, I don't. I actually have not counted. I've certainly got plenty. I mean, I, I would yeah. be surprised if it was less than forty. But I've also been like really, really like. I'm really trying to like I have this big stack of books leaning against my wall and I'm trying to get through all of them this year and um, I'm doing well with it. Actually, it was something really cool. Sure. Uh, so this buy nothing group that I have on, on Facebook, everybody should join their local buy nothing group. Your town probably has one and it's where you could like if there's like movies I don't want, I just put them out for free and people take them. When you finish a book, you can put it out and people take them. But you also get free stuff as well. Mm-hmm. It's where I got my cat. It's also where the other day I got a free copy of the Max Brooks Bigfoot Mass- Massacre book. What? Have you heard about this? No. Uh, Devolution. It's the guy who did. Uh, actually, oh, Mel Brooks. It ties into Mel Brooks. Yeah, World son. War Z, right? He did World War Z. Well, his latest book is Devolution, a firsthand account of the Rainier Sasquatch Massacre. <laughs> so the same sort of oral history, but yeah. with Bigfoots. Or is it Bigfeet? I don't know. But uh, yeah, I can't wait to crack into that shit. But yeah, I can't advocate for everyone to join their local buy nothing group. It will save you money and help you clear space in your house, and you feel good about it. Love it. Yeah, to it. Uh, I just get revolt stacks of books, and people take them, and it brings you peace knowing that your old stuff is out there making people happy. <laughs> let's, uh, let's do plugs and close this show up. Let's uh, do it. You can find us on moviejohn.com. That's J A W N. Uh, we're on the Movie John Podcast Network now. Uh, you can find us everywhere online at I Like Two Movie. It's numeric two or I L Two Movie on Instagram, I believe. <laughs> also, we're never going to use it. Well, I I actually am working because I have an Instagram for my other podcast and yeah. that Steve kind of handles. Yes, uh, I'm like taking notes. Uh, uh, you should see some stuff on our Instagram very okay. soon. Right. Um, probably with the posting of this episode. Cool. Um, as I figure it out. Because I just got me one of these Apple pens so I can draw pictures. Oh, yeah. And, um, and I'm having a lot of fun with that in trying to create things rather than read the news. <laughs> that's So, yeah. So, definitely subscribe to our Instagram. There should be stuff in the future. Yeah, and that's IL2Movie. And uh, you can find me everywhere at Philadelphia. It's with an F, Twitter, Letterboxd. Uh, and uh, oh, and uh, my other podcast, which I, I swear to God is actually launching uh, pretty soon. Uh, Has Killer an Instagram. Bees. Yes, it does. Uh, killer BS podcast everywhere online. Nice, nice. And it's for killer bees, not killer bullshit. That's right. Oh, that's probably going to be some killer bullshit. That's right. I mean, that in a good way. Um, yes, so uh, at Dan Scully and all the things, Movie John as well. Check out uh, Findy.com as well. You can check out uh, Hot Property. It's on Spotify or wherever you get like podcasts and shit. Um, Hot Property Pod on Instagram and Twitter. And um, also, you know, shout out to Jeff Ryan, the uh, guy we had on for last week's show, yes. because uh, he just put together a uh, Valentine's Day promo for Blood from Stone. 
And uh, I like to movie movie got itself a pull quote we on sure that did. trailer. And that is uh, our show's first pull quote. So yes. congratulations to us and thanks to him. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I have a Dropbox link, so I will spread that. Um, because one, you do want to see Blood from Stone, a kick's yes, ass. And yep. two, you really want to see this trailer because <laughs> it has I like to movie movie yeah. in it. Yes. Uh, it's like, and I like to movie movie. Variety. Esquire. It's uh, like, motherfucker. Pretty fun. Pretty Rubbing cool. shoulders the giants over here. Pretty cool. And, pretty uh, cool. you know, uh, big thanks to Jeff, uh, who I think will probably uh, be a future guest on the show again. Did um, you watch any of uh, what's-his-name's videos? You bet I did. Did you? Yo. <laughs> they are Yo. genuinely entertaining. He's a good musician. Yes. Yep. I didn't think it was possible to improve upon Phil Collins, but here we are. Yes, uh, very fun. Very yeah. Uh, everybody should look up um, the YouTube channel of Vanya. Vanya, I don't know. That's it. Vanya. Vanya. It's Vanya. It's pronounced Vanya. I know that. Vanya, uh, the lead sure. of uh, Blood from Stone. Look up Blood from Stone and look up the the lead's name and uh, check out his YouTube channel. It's amazing. Uh, okay, uh, my name is Garrett Smith, and I like to movie movie. My name is Dan Scully, and I like to movie movie. And we all know that you like to movie, movie, because we like 